Our reading comes from the book of Matthew, book of Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Matthew 1, chapter 1, uh, 1 through, or chapter 1, 18 through 25. Um, it is page 1497 in your pew Bibles. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophet. The virgin will be with with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is word of the Lord. Um, I'm sure you are sick of hearing this, but once again, Merry Christmas. Thank you. Let's try that one more time. That was kind of weak sauce. Um, Merry Christmas. Thank you. As we gather to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, I just want us to take a moment to consider the impact of this event that happened more than 2,000 years ago. Um, In the midst of all the lights, parties, gift exchanges, and um, gatherings like this one, it's easy for us to forget that this birth has been a paradigm-shifting event in history. For example, consider how we think about time today. We literally split time into two, and that splitting point is the birth of Jesus Christ. B.C., before Christ, and A.D., Anno Domini, the year of the Lord. Even the modern terms, right, uh, before Common Era and Common Era, are still um, using the birth of Jesus Christ as that splitting point. But of course, the birth of Jesus Christ this Christmas is more than a marker of time. As we buy gifts, uh, plan events, attend gatherings and services, Christmas prompts us to think about what the most important thing in life is. What is the most important thing in your life? That, of course, is a very philosophical question, And uh, philosophers actually have a term for this. Um, It's a Latin word, summum bonum. It means the highest good. And the term refers to the guiding principle, the fundamental principle that produces life in all its fullness. For some, this highest good is happiness. And for others, this is its success. 
But regardless of what your summum bonum is, the end goal is the same. We all want life that is full and rich. This is something that everybody, Christian or not, can agree on. And, and in our quest for this life in all its fullness, our concept of the highest good guides our most important decisions. And in a nutshell, that, that is what this story in Matthew is all about. Matthew's Christmas story may seem both familiar and unfamiliar. It tells of a virgin birth, right? That's the familiar part. But what is missing, what is notably missing, is a baby in a manger, right? Shepherds in the field. Like, those things are missing. They belong to uh, the narrative of Luke. Matthew tells this Christmas story from his own perspective, he, his story revolves around a man named Joseph and his highest good, and how this paradigm-shifting event of Jesus' birth challenges and changes how Joseph thinks about what is the most important thing in his life. In fact, this story foreshadows the transformative encounters um, that we will encounter throughout Matthew's gospel. Joseph is not the—he's not only the first person that we meet in this gospel, he is the first one to experience the transformative encounter with Jesus Christ. Matthew describes Joseph as a righteous man. Uh, That's an indication that his summum bonum, his highest good, is righteousness. And in in Joseph's social and religious context, righteousness means having a right standing— with God, and that was thought to be attained by uh, diligent and strict adherence to God's law, the Bible. Joseph, we're also told that he was engaged to Mary. And according to the Jewish customs of the day, engagement was as binding as marriage itself. In other words, Joseph and Mary were virtually considered husband and wife. So imagine the turmoil and confusion that Joseph must have felt when he found out that Mary was with child. I'm not sure, um, ask Peter later, I'm not sure if this is theologically sound, but I always pictured uh, the show Maury, and when he announces, Joseph, you are not the father. Like, and, and, you know, the, usually the husband or the, 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 the father or the mother just kind of runs off to the backstage, right? That's the chaos that I always picture whenever I read this narrative. Joseph just confused and wondering what in the world is going on. His world was turned upside down by this unexpected news. Joseph wrestled with it for a while, and luckily for him, he had his highest good, his guiding principle. And in the end, he came to the conclusion that he had to divorce Mary. According to the law and his social cultural norms, that was the only option that Joseph had to divorce Mary. And that was the righteous decision within his paradigm. However, that's when God intervened. He sent an angel to Joseph, revealing the divine nature of Mary's pregnancy. The angel also instructed Joseph to take Mary home as his wife. 
Then comes the true crescendo in verse 21, where the angel says, Mary will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. That was the paradigm-shifting moment for Joseph. For Joseph to name this child was to accept him as his own. Throughout his life, Joseph held righteousness as his highest good. And Joseph's paradigm for righteousness was all about doing. It was all about following the law. It was all about being obedient to the Bible. And once again, based on, based on that paradigm, divorcing Mary was the righteous decision. That was the only decision. However, now God presented him with a different paradigm. According to this paradigm, righteousness was not about what he did or did not do, but it was about accepting, accepting God's will, accepting Mary as his wife, and most importantly, accepting her baby boy as his own. Notice how this new paradigm does not negate the Joseph's pursuit of righteousness. It simply shifts his paradigm regarding how to obtain righteousness. That is what Christmas, the birth of Jesus Christ, has always done ever since that night 2,000 years ago. Christmas does not tell us to stop pursuing life in all of its fullness. Christmas does not question the validity of our highest good. Rather, it shifts our paradigm regarding how to obtain what we consider to be the highest good in our life. It presents us a different way of obtaining it. I don't know about you, but I find that liberating. I find that freeing and like a welcoming thing. It's a relief because deep down I know how impossible it is to achieve, consistently achieve what I perceive, perceive to be the highest good in my life. We have seen this in our society. Striving for unending happiness and success can be, and it is, an, a, a pipe dream. Because we're not just, we're not seeking for moments of happiness. What we want is a life that is always full of happiness. Life that is always full of happiness. When it comes to success, we're not talking about momentary victories or moments of victories. We're talking about constant success. Right? It's different. This, in reality, this often means that when we do obtain that happiness for a brief while, instead of savoring the moment, what we tend to do is we think about the next happy moment, how we are going to plan it, how we are going to live it, and how that's going to come about. The same thing happens when it comes to success. When we have reached that desired level of success, instead of savoring the moment, instead of finding contentment in it, what we try to do is climb up even higher. It fuels the pressure to climb even higher on the ladder of achievement. 
Whatever our sunum bonum is, whatever our highest good is, in our current paradigm, there is no end. In our current paradigm, nothing ever fills our life. And life in its all, in life that is full and rich, it's always slightly out of our reach. There's always, there's always something more for us to do, more happiness, more success, more money. This paradigm places huge emphasis on what we do, what we do to get more, do more. And that's the situation that Joseph found himself in. I mean, the Bible calls him a righteous man. I mean, he's already a religious man. But as such, his highest good, making righteous decisions, was, the, was his way of avoiding sin. In short, his sunum bonum, his highest good, called for perfection. And, and when, he was, when he found out that his fiancé, right, his, his Mary was with a child, he was, he was feeling the pressure to make yet another decision that was both righteous and perfect. But what Joseph failed to grasp in this moment was that sin, the thing that he was trying to avoid by achieving his highest good, the sin isn't a, a, a misdeed or an ethical failure. It is a condition, a condition that affects the core of our human nature. It's the thing that separates us from God. Throughout history, many religious men, many pious men, many wise men have tried to bridge that separation, bridge that gap between human beings and God by Different, different things. They have tried moral living. They have tried a strict adherence to religious laws. They even try whatever the culture or the society defines as the highest good. They have tried it all. But as noble as they may be, they all have failed because they do not address the root cause of the problem. They don't address the sin. Sin is not a thing that we do or don't do. Sin is a condition that is inherent to all of us. That's the dilemma that Joseph was dealing with. Then came the birth of Jesus Christ. This birth cut right through this dilemma and presented a new paradigm. New paradigm of a obtaining righteousness. It redefined what righteous, righteousness was. It, de, it redefined righteousness, not in terms of avoiding sin, but in terms of a child. A child that would save people from their sins. In this new paradigm, righteousness was not earned. It was given given through this child. In this new paradigm, life in all its fullness was not found in what people did or did not do, but it was found in accepting this person, this child. Like Joseph, all of us want life in all its fullness. That's something that you and I have in common. 
common because other than that, you guys are Packers fans. I'm a Seahawks fan. The list goes on and on. But we all want that, the life that is full and rich. And in our quest for such life, we have pursued our highest good. We have done everything within our power. Right? If you're an athlete, I'm sure you have tried to follow that 10,000-hour rule. Maybe that's why I'm not a good soccer player, because I did not follow that rule. If you're more of an academic, I'm sure you have spent hours and hours studying, trying to produce the best work. I'm sure you have pulled all-nighters on coffee, you know, Red Bull, and even five-hour energy. Whatever you have done, I'm sure you have felt that need to do more because that life that you wanted was slightly, just slightly out of your reach. So we were forced to do more, seek more. In doing so, we have only exhausted ourselves drained ourselves, and drowned ourselves in the suffocating pressure to perform and to always go for more. More happiness, more money, more success. It is a never-ending quest. No matter what we do or how much we do, there is always more for us to do that incompleteness, that, that void. That is a result of our, of our sin. That's a result of our inherent human condition. Sin has separated us from God, and that separation has created this gaping hole in everybody's life. Some people call it God-shaped hole. And this hole is so massive that no amount of happiness, success, money, or righteousness of our own, or any, any other highest good, will be able to fill that hole. In other words, without addressing the condition sin, our life will never be in all its fullness. It will never be that. But God gives us a different paradigm. And in this paradigm, life that we seek, that life that we want, is not earned, but given through the child who came to save us from our sins. And his name is Jesus Christ. And even though it is not explicit in our text, the fact that he was conceived by the work of the Holy Spirit means that he is the Son of God, and he is God himself. Accepting Jesus in a very practical sense means that we are entering a relationship with God. And in this relationship, we are accepted by Him, known by Him, and loved by Him. And in this relationship, God fills the gaping hole that we have tried to fill with our own hands. And that's the only way to fill that gaping hole. And after our hole has been filled, a transformative journey begins where the life that we desire, life in, its all, in, in all of its fullness, is not found in what we do or what we don't do, but found in the person and the relationship that we have with him. Often, we think that accepting Jesus Christ 
means letting go of our personal goals or our highest good altogether. But as we have seen today or tonight, we are not asked to abandon our quests. We are not asked to forget about life that is full and rich. No, we are simply to sh- we are asked to simply shift our paradigm to seek the life that we desire, not in what we do or in ourselves, but in the person of Jesus Christ. When we embrace this new paradigm, we begin to see our aspirations through a different lens. Happiness is no longer measured by transient experiences or material possessions, but by the deep and abiding joy that comes from this relationship. And success is not defined by worldly measures like prestige or wealth, but by Christ-like characters, characters that we already deeply cherish. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, the list goes on and on. This doesn't mean that our earthly pursuits lose their value completely. No, rather they are, I would say, um, enriched, and transformed. Our careers do not lose their value, but they become a different opportunity to tell the world about this new paradigm in Jesus Christ. Our relationships, our our experiences, our happiness, all these things don't just go away, but they become, they become transformed to become to be opportunities for us to tell the world about this new paradigm that we have found in Jesus Christ. I have been fortunate to meet many wise people, wise uh, role models, so to speak, in my life. One of these people that I have met in my life um, is a man known as SJ. Um, I met him during my seminary years uh, at Calvin while I was training to become a pastor. he had, a, he, had his diff, he had a different name, but he just went by SJ. Um, that's what he chose to go by. Um, when I first learned that SJ stood for small Jesus, I thought that was probably the single most condescending thing that a Christian, yet alone a seminarian, could, uh, you know, say about himself. I was like, this guy is a little wacko here. However, I got to, as I got to know him a little better, I realized that he meant that in the most humble way possible. He, at one time, told me that that was a reminder to himself that he has a new life in Jesus Christ. He has a new worldview. He has a new way of living his life. I remember one time I was in the uh, student center obsessing over my grade. I was fuming over this minus next to my letter grade. Not even the letter itself. I was fuming over that minus next to my grade. Um, SJ came over and listened to me patiently. And after listening to my nonsense rant about whatever I was ranting about, he reminded me of a simple truth. He told me that my purpose there at Calvin wasn't to chase the best grades, I was there 
to train to become the best ministers that I could be, minister I could be. He told me that with or without that minus next to my letter grade, I was already called by God to serve him in his ministry, that with or without that minus next to my letter grade, he was going to use me. SJ reminded me of that truth. And once I let go of my obsession with my grade and my GPA, paradoxically, my life became a little fuller. SJ, in his modest way, was like a small Jesus, not in a divine sense, but in his ability to challenge and shift my perspective toward a Christ-centered paradigm. He constantly reminded me and challenged me that the meaning of life is not found in what grade that I got or, or, or what I produced on my paper, but in the person of Jesus Christ who came to save me from my sin. And believe it or not, all of us are called to be small Jesus in that sense. As God sent his son into the world with a new paradigm, Joseph was invited to partake in that salvific plan. And as now, even, even now, as God continues to spread this life-giving paradigm in Jesus Christ, we are too invited to partake in the same salvific plan by embracing and accepting Jesus Christ as our own Lord and Savior, we join God in challenging the world and its paradigm. We remind the world that life that we all desire, life in all its fullness, is not found in what we do or what we don't do, but it's found in the person of Jesus Christ and the life-giving relationship that we have with him. The sermon title tonight is The Kingdom of Heaven Belongs to Such as These. And when I think about that line, I think the kingdom of heaven belongs to small Jesuses who are shifting their paradigm to see their life, see the world, and see their work through the lens of Jesus Christ, who are challenging the world to join this body in spreading that life-giving paradigm. That's what we are called to do. And the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask that you help us to embrace this new paradigm that brings true life into our lives. Teach us to find our truest fulfillment, not in the fleeting pursuits of this world, but in the deep and abiding joy that comes from knowing you, loving you, and being known by you and loved by you. Grant us the wisdom to see beyond our immediate desires to the greater purpose that you have for us. 
Help us to trust in your plan even when it challenges our perspectives and our understanding. As we celebrate the birth of your Son, Jesus Christ, fill our hearts with peace and joy and renew our spirits to pursue a life that is full and rich, the life that is only found in your Son, Jesus Christ. And help us to accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the greatest gift that we can ask for. And in his name we pray. Amen.